Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I am Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. On our last episode, we had former U.S. Trade Representative Ambassador Michael Froman. Because we released that episode on March the second, which is also right after the deadline for the U.S.-China trade negotiation, that interview primarily focused on U.S. trade policies, President Trump's negotiation efforts with various countries after his election, and some of the underlying principles in trade that will hopefully help our listeners understand trade on a deeper, more fundamental level. We're going to continue the conversation with Ambassador Froman in this episode and ask him some more general questions about his career. His interactions with President Obama, his outlook on the future of liberalism and globalization, and his advice for young people. I want to apologize to you in advance because today is actually the first time we're introducing the video component to our policy punchline production. So the audio quality might be less than ideal since we didn't actually record it in our studio but filmed it. With that said, if you're listening on iTunes or SoundCloud, you can also check out the video of this interview on PolicyPunchline.com. So here is our interview with Ambassador Michael Froman. A couple questions ago, you mentioned the phrase "continuity and change." How would you categorize the continuity and change um, you and your successor and and、um, the President Obama and President Trump's administrations? Well, like Ambassador Lighthizer, who's my、yes. my successor, is,、yeah. a, is a true trade professional. Yeah, he's been involved in the field for thirty years. He worked at USTR as a deputy USTR、uh, during the Reagan administration. He worked on Capitol Hill for、uh, for Senator Dole.、Uh, he's been a trade lawyer、uh, since, so he knows the field, you know, very well. He's got great respect for the career staff and the institution of USTR, which is might be one of the, the best. Government agencies、uh, in, in in the United States,、um, and I think there's a lot of continuity there in terms of our our respect for the institution and for this. We may have a somewhat different approach on on particular tactics, but、uh, but I think he is. You know, like we are, we are all every trade representative is trying to、um, enhance economic opportunity、uh, first and foremost in the United States for American workers, American manufacturers, American farmers, American service. Uh, providers.、Um, uh, he's had、uh, Ambassador Lighthizer has a long career in、um, uh, focusing on imports and how imports have damaged parts of the U.S. economy, and、um, his approach has been to try and pre- prevent imports from coming in in that regard.、Um, others have focused on exports and opening other markets to American and to American exports. But I have a great deal of, of respect for him, and、uh, you know I wish him the best in these negotiations. Awesome. I want to turn from trade and a little bit more、uh, towards your career and your experiences in, in administrations. So we all know the wonderful work you, you did for TPP and TTIP,、um, and I bet a lot of people must have asked you what your mem- most memorable trade deal you've ever worked on. But but I actually really want to ask you what's the most painful trade negotiation you you've gone through.、Um, Trade negotiations tend to get real only around two or three in the morning, for whatever reason. And、um, there are serious negotiations, including the WTO, for example, in Bali, and I guess it was 
2013, maybe, uh, when we were negotiating the trade facilitation agreement, 164 countries, and we were up four nights in a row, basically, without sleeping. And it was literally painful because I found that by the end of the conference, I could not sit down without falling asleep. And I could only stay, I could only stay awake by continuing to walk around the room. And, and so I just paced back and forth around the room for the final day because otherwise I couldn't function. Um, a little bit about your career before you became the trade representative. So, so I've been reading the book, I don't know if you've read this yet, as Adam Tu's new book, um, Crashed, How a Decade of Financial Crisis Changed the World. Have you, have you heard of the book? So it's, a, it's been a, sort of a bestseller uh, last year. The Economist magazine says it's like top five econ book. Uh, so the first thing he wrote about in the very first chapter about the financial crisis is actually about the Hamilton Project. And it's about the uh, launched by former Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin uh, in 2006. Uh, and, and the senator who delivered the keynote at the opening of the Hamilton Project was a young senator from, from Illinois, was pres then President Barack Obama. Senator Obama. Se senator Obama, yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, then Senator Barack Obama. And then Secretary Ru the book went on explaining how Se Secretary Rubin later played a very important role shaping the, the direction of American um, economic policy later, especially during President Obama's tenure. And, and so they... They were saying that because you were uh, Secretary Rubin's chief of staff at the Treasury and you went to Harvard Law with President Obama, you kind of make the connection uh, between between the two men. Um, how was I guess how was that experience working with with them? And <laughs> well, uh, look, it was, I had uh, uh, a great privilege to work with uh, Secretary Rubin in the Clinton administration yeah. at the White House when he was head of the National Economic Council, and then when he went over. Uh, to be uh, Treasury Secretary, and uh, he's one of my mentors, and um, I, I've learned a lot. Um, I've learned a lot from him. Um, uh, President Obama and I went to law school together. Uh, we served on law review uh, yeah. together, and when he started running for um, Senate, um, we came across each other, and I offered to be of help to him, including introducing him to, to people that he may not have met uh, yet. So, and I think I, I think I was the one who introduced him to. Uh, to Secretary uh, to Secretary Rubin, but I think I haven't read the book yet, so I don't know how he characterizes it. <laughs> no, he didn't really um, characterize it. But, but um, uh, you know, I think um, uh, there are a lot of people who um, grew up out of the Clinton administration um, and then went on either to academia or the private sector or uh, or otherwise, um, and then found their way back into uh, back into government. Uh, that's sort of a natural progression that happens when governments, administrations come, uh, come uh, in and out. And a lot of very talented people came out of the Obama administration, who I imagine will be involved um, in the next Democratic uh, administration. And so uh, that kind of um, pipeline is one that's very, uh, uh, very important. So uh, th this might be a funny question to you, but but did you guys all s see it coming? How the, the then Senator Obama would would have some such sort of quality that would one day make him the the president. Was there something unique about uh, President Obama back then in two thousand four, two thousand six? You know, I was uh, my my wife and I were sitting in literally the last row of the stadium, the arena in Boston during the Democratic Convention of 2004, um, when then-candidate for Senate, Barack Obama, he was a state senator at the time, yeah. 
gave one of the keynote speeches, and it was a remarkable moment. It was his sort of entree into the national yeah. stage, international stage. But it was a remarkable moment in the hall to see the reaction of everybody. And I guess that was really the first time I thought that this is somebody who could really go all the way. We, you know, knowing him from law school, I mean, he was, he was incredibly smart. He was a great leader. Um, he had a great presence at law school. Um, and we all knew he was going to go off and do something great, probably in politics. Uh, but I'd say it was probably that moment then watching him at the, at the Democratic Convention when you can really feel like this man could be president someday. And, and you just mentioned how uh, people from the Clinton administration might return to Obama's administration and the same thing uh, for the next uh, Democratic administration. How, how was the period of time after you uh, left the Treasury, left the Clinton administration, and before you entered President Obama's uh, cabinet? Because I guess how, how do you stay in touch with people in the policies side and on, on the politics side when you're also in the private sector doing all sorts of different things. Yeah, then you find ways. I mean, there are lots of, 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 whether it's think tanks and conferences or political you know, groupings that get formed or people stay in touch uh, informally. And then when campaigns get set up, you find people migrating towards one candidate or another, depending on, on who, they, uh, uh, who, they, who they prefer. Um, so it's uh, you know, there's lots of opportunity there, I think, to stay in touch. And you know, one of the great things about the American system is, unlike um, some of the parliamentary systems, which are you know which also have their own strengths, but which are basically very strong civil um, servant organizations with just a few political appointees who are there for a short period of time. In the U.S. system, where we have you know somewhat deeper political involvement every four years, administration that's able to come in and appoint. 3,000 people, for example, across the government, it creates a much more dynamic situation, in my view, where people are coming in from academia, from business, from law, um, from a whole set of experiences, and bringing their perspective to the table. And then afterwards, going back out to wherever they go, and with a much greater understanding of the challenges of governance and of public policy. And I think that makes it for a much richer um, uh, civil society. So right after you left um, the administration for President Obama, you, why did you choose MasterCard as your next destination? Because you, right now you're the vice chairman and president at, at MasterCard. So uh, I, uh, having had this longstanding interest in, in uh, public issues and in, in social impact, uh, I was looking for a place that would, it was really committed to using its resources to have positive social impact. And you know, I loved being in business uh, before, um, uh, and so I, I was very comfortable going back to the private sector. Um, but what attracted me about MasterCard is that it is very deep in its culture, that it is a purpose-driven company that wants to do well by doing good. It's a network for good, and um, the opportunity to be able to use our technology, our products, our people, um, to have positive social impact is one that was that was very attractive. So, you know, we're doing things like uh, we, we announced in December we have a global partnership with Gavi, the Global Alliance on Vaccine Innovation, to use our technology to be able to help parents track the vaccines of their children in developing countries and to get SMS messages when they're late for bringing their kids in to vaccine. It has nothing to do with payments. It has nothing to do with credit cards. But because we know how to run networks and we know how to 
protect and, and manage uh, information with integrity um, and with trust, it creates an opportunity for us to bring those skills to the table and try and address major societal and economic issues, and that's a privilege. And that's when uh, your deal-making skills sort of come in and help bring everybody to the table. I and love it. I love bringing together <laughs> you know, the private sector, you know, government sometimes, international organizations. We're doing work with UNICEF in Uganda uh, to help families um, uh, pay and manage the school fees they pay to make sure their kids can stay in school uh, and, and graduate. Um, uh, we're doing work with private sector partners in like Unilever and places like Kenya, where uh, we're able to digitize the relationship between a, a, a micro merchant, somebody who has a little store at the end of a road, and their Unilever supplier so that they can finally get credit and be brought into the financial system. We've committed as a company to bring 500 million people, additional people, into the financial system, and we're well on our way towards, towards meeting that objective. We're about three, more than 350 million people towards meeting that objective. So this is something we take very, very seriously. We manage it like a business. It is a business. And we're determined to demonstrate that you can have commercially sustainable social impact, meaning that it's not just philanthropy, it's not just corporate social responsibility, although those are very important, that if you're going to get scalable and scaled solutions, it's got to be in the economic interest of the companies to deliver that. And that's what we're trying to prove out. And just following that thought about commercially sustainable social impact, how do you think the private and public sectors could work more efficiently together to make economic growth more sustainable and inclusive? And I guess, you know, as governments today kind of have this tendency to turn inwards, how can the private sectors sort of take up the responsibility yeah, no, and branch out? a great opportunity because as governments have become um, more deadlocked in terms of dealing with major issues, there's a real opportunity and a need for the private sector to step up. You know, when, in my, uh, when I was at the White House for the first term of the Obama administration, one of my jobs was to help coordinate our international development policy. And we talked a lot about public-private partnerships, but a lot, of, uh, my, a lot of folks in government, when they think about public-private partnerships, what they really mean is they want companies to write them a check. And um, companies want to do more than that and have the capability and need to do more than that. And so building the kind of trust with governments or NGOs or international organizations so that they understand what the private sector can bring to the table. And the private sector needs to adjust as well to understanding what are the priorities and the interests of, of government. I mean, they're not there to profit maximize. They have much other, much important, uh, um, many other important interests, including normative issues and issues of values and accountability, the private sector needs to understand how to operate more effectively with the public sector as well. But when it works, it's really powerful because we're never, there's not enough foreign assistance in the world, there's not enough philanthropy in the world to deal with the challenges that we have or to meet the, the SDGs. You know, if we're gonna meet these kinds of, of, of goals, we're gonna to need to mobilize the innovation, the incentives, the ingenuity, and the resources of the private sector at scale. And that's only going to happen if the private sector sees that it's in its own economic interest to do that. Not just a side project, but that's central to its business model. And you know, we're, it's one of the things that we're focused on at MasterCard. Do you see this model sort of gaining increasing importance and influence in the future to sort of end up replacing the, the traditional, conventional um, 
nonprofit or, or other organizations' roles? No, I, I think there's a great. It's all about collaboration. I, I think there are different roles for different parties in the ecosystem uh, to play. I think NGOs play an absolutely critical role. Uh, we partner with a lot of NGOs um, in terms of the delivery of services, for example, or trainings in, in the field. Um, I think international organizations, governments play a critical role. Foundations, philanthropies play a critical role. There's, there's a role for everybody. Um, um, but to, to really get that synergies, we've got to build more trust among the different parts of, of, that, uh, of that ecosystem and make sure that everybody can bring the full assets that they have to the table. So I think, I think the, the points you are making right now is very, very important in terms of bringing everybody together to the, to the table and addressing some of those issues we're seeing on a global scale today. But it also seems that the, the, as, as we address those issues, as we answer those questions, there are more and more issues sort of emerging. And it's getting you know, quite chaotic in the past two, two to three years. We, we're seeing Brexit, we're seeing, you know, on a, on a minute scale, the, the, the Yellow Jacket protest in, in France. You see the refugees in, in Middle East. Um, we've got the Venezuela situation going on. And right now we've got the whole trade war that we just talked about. So are, are we really progressing as, as a society? Like, because, you know, like I think for, for college kids these days, we go into classrooms and we end up leaving with more questions in mind than, than, than answers. I think that's what college is for, isn't it? But look, I think that you wouldn't, there's no period in human history that you would prefer to be born in in this period, right? I think of all, there's less violence in the world right now than there has been for centuries, maybe ever. There is better health. There is better nutrition. Not that, all that is not to say that there isn't huge work still to do. There are too many people who are hungry. There are too many people who are still living uh, below uh, the poverty line, who are living on you know one or two dollars a day, but the numbers of people who are living on one or two dollars a day has gone down significantly over the last couple of decades. Um, health outcomes have improved significantly. Um, you know, with all the violence that we see on the uh, on, on the news or on the internet, you know, we do not have the kinds of major wars that we that human history has been marked by, um, and so. I think, on the whole, it's it's a better time now than ever, which gives us the luxury and the privilege and the obligation to say this is the time to really focus on the rest, on you know reaching the the sustainability development goals, on uh, promoting peace and prosperity, on wherever it is, and dealing with the refugee issues, dealing with climate change, because we're in a better position now to do so than we ever have been. So what is the rest? What do you see as the most challenging, urgent issues that my generation really got to get out there and, and address? Uh, you know, there's a long, there's a long list. I mean, there's, uh, there's existential issues like climate change um, that affect everybody everywhere um, and need to be and need to be addressed um, with much more aggressive, uh, aggressive answers. Uh, but there are issues in the community just around tolerance. You know, and acceptance and integration. So it's at there are local issues, there are global issues. They're all important, and wherever one can have an impact, one should. Forgive me for pushing back a little bit on, on your previous point about the, the progress. I, I know that economically, or in terms of numbers, we're improving drastically as as a human race. But I don't think people are happier per se compared to 30 years ago 
200 years ago, 1,000 years ago, or even during the time we were when our hunter-gatherers. So how, how do you measure, I mean, from a holistic view, I mean, you've really um, lived through so many experiences and seen so many, um, I guess, not just disasters and successes, but ups and downs. And, and how, and I haven't seen the economic activities and, and issues, social issues for, for as long as you have. So how, what kind of mentality should we, should we be having these days? <laughs> You know. I'm not sure I have an answer to the happiness <laughs> uh, conundrum. I think that's maybe beyond my, my, my uh, capabilities. But I think what you may be pointing out is that um, happiness is not just an economic issue. Um, uh, that you can be um, more economically stable um, and still be unhappy. Or in fact, even as you're economically stable, it frees up your mind to think about things that you're dissatisfied about. So, I mean, happiness is an area that's getting a lot of attention these days, yeah. a lot of interesting research being done, uh, uh, um, surveys across countries as to which are the, the happiest and, uh, and, and why, and I'm not sure we've really got our head around happiness as a, uh, uh, as a field yet, um, but, uh, but just to think about, it's a, um, if our focus is on happiness, that's a pretty good situation as compared to survival. survival. And um, that's showing a lot of evolution in human society, and um, you know that, that, that's a that's a that's a great situation to be in. Do you have any advice for for, for young people to, these days? Like I think uh, um, devoting some part of your life, including not just like a period of your life, but finding a way on a day to day basis to devote part of your life to service is, I think, incredibly fulfilling. It's a source of great happiness, if you like. And this is a place, Princeton's a place, um, that cares a lot about that, Princeton, the nation service. There are a million ways to provide service to one's uh, uh, family, community, um, uh, country, uh, and the world. And um, I encourage students to, to pursue that aggressively. Awesome. Um, so you would say you're very much an optimist about about the future. Um, awesome. So I guess the the name of our podcast is, is is Policy Punchline. So I really have to ask you at the very end of our show, what do you think is the is the punchline here? I mean, it could be about trade. It could be about, about policy discussions. It could be about uh, your current involvement with Mastercard. A anything. I think the punchline is. Um, uh, find purpose in your life and go for it. Find purpose in your life and, and go for it. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us today, Thanks, Ambassador Foreman. This is a great pleasure. Uh, and thank you guys for uh, joining us in the, in the show today. Please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play, and visit us on policypunchline.com uh, for information. We would also like to thank the Julius Rupinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance for sponsoring uh, this podcast. Thank you very much. And that concludes our interview with Ambassador Michael Froman. Again, I apologize that the audio quality of that interview was less than ideal. But the trade-off is that you'll get to watch the video of the interview on policypunchline.com. Please follow us on Twitter, iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. We would also like to thank Princeton's Jules Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance and Griswold Center for Economic Policy Studies for supporting our show. Thank you for listening today.
You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.